Welcome back to the Creco AI Real Estate Roundtable for this sector expert interview with Roundtable co-host Saul Klein, the original real estate internet evangelist, multiple-time founder, strategist, and futurist. Saul is recognized as an industry pioneer in real estate syndication and education and one of the luminaries that paved the way for real estate to transition from the big book to the online world. I'm Andrea Senni, technology growth strategist, founder, CRE Collaborative, brokerage owner at EAC Properties, and the host of the Creco AI Roundtable, your all-in-one comprehensive view of what's happening across the industry from some of the industry's earliest technology adopters, Saul, foremost experts, Saul, technology in technology marketing, brokerage, government policy, capital construction, and cybersecurity. Saul, I could not be more excited to be having this one-on-one with you. So much is changing. So much has changed in the world of real estate. Before we get into all that, let's talk some history and context. Tell us about coming online, the industry coming online, and then let's talk about ICE and everything else that's happened. Well, Andrea, it's great to be here. You know, we've been planning this for a while. We just haven't taken the time to do it. So I'm happy to be here as well and be able to uh, to uh, talk to you and answer any questions that I that I can. You know, this is a changing world. There's lots of things. I forget stuff, right? I read stuff and then the next day I forgot it because there's all this new stuff coming in, right? There's just not enough room inside and it just goes in one ear and it kind of comes out the other. So, but there is a lot taking place. And, and so a little history of uh, technology and real estate. The, in 1993, the National Association of Realtors uh, allocated about $13 million to help realtors go online through the creation of something called RIN, the Realtors Information Network. I was fortunate enough to be uh, hired to look at these new applications as they were being built, try to figure out how they might work in a real estate broker and agent's business, create the the conversation around it and the compelling argument, and then take that argument to MLSs across the country. So in 95, you're right, prior to prior to actually 93, we had the book. By the time 95 rolled around, we still had the book because you don't let go of the book on it. But that's an interesting story how we eventually got rid of the book. But we got those listings. We got them up on the internet. And uh, Realtor.com was created, owned by RIN, the Realtors Information Network, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the National Association of Realtors. So NAR owned Realtor.com 100%. And there were rules of operation that were created to make it something that realtors wanted to participate in. And about 1996, what happened was when Realtor.com, which was a piece of it was the public side of of the Realtors Information Network, when it was about to be exposed to the world, uh, Microsoft decided that it wanted to do the same thing. And so Microsoft had a website. At that time, there were like three real estate portals, Realtor.com, actually four, Realtor.com, HomeSeeker, CyberHomes, and Microsoft introduced HomeAdvisor. And the model, the business model for Realtor.com was if you have a listing, you ought to put it up on the internet because everybody's going to start going to the internet. And they're going to get to see your listing. And because Realtor.com, this web, we had to explain what a website was. We had to explain <laughs> what email was. Then we explained that people, and the way I explained it was I actually had a newspaper um, ad from a movie theater. And it, I don't remember the name of the movie, but it was a big, almost like a quarter page ad about a movie. And then in there was a URL. 
was a website address. No kidding. And then I would, and that like first one I found, right? Because I'm saying, oh, the internet, I'm learning. I got to go out and look, and I find that the movies are using it. Yeah, if it works for Hollywood, it's going to work for I, your real estate. Great. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I <laughs> use that as an example. Look, they're using, this is coming. They're going to use this now. You better put your listings up here. What's the business model? The business model for Realtor.com started at $2 a listing a month. And before, and the first MLS to sign up, and I was the one that went out and explained it all and got on black and white acetate overheads, right? An overhead machine. <laughs> and convinced the Austin uh, MLS and the Austin Association of Realtors that this was the future. And they elected to do it and they negotiated and we got the price down and we got the first contract was a dollar a listing a month. Wow. No three-headed monsters. No other people get your leads. This wasn't about leads. Matter of fact, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> this was just you getting your, 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 your deal out there. You're getting your exposure. Right. Right. And that was the whole idea. And your phone number was it? Your phone number was in there. And then yeah. if you didn't have an email address, you could get one at realtor.com, an email address. And this was all brand new. But then when we launched at the committee, launched realtor.com to the public in August, in uh, November at the National Association of Realtors Convention in Atlanta in um, 1995 timeframe, 96. And at that time, Microsoft decided, hey, we got to get into this. And so they jumped out with their portal, Home Advisor, and they said, we're free. We'll take your listings for free. And of course, all of the realtors said, hey, free is better than a dollar a listing a month. Little did they know. And so Microsoft got their website populated and the Realtors Information Network couldn't charge a dollar a listing a month because Microsoft was offering it for nothing. And so the, the directors of NAR got cold feet basically they said we can't compete with microsoft and if we have to go to zero and we can't charge for this we can't make any money that collapses this whole business model so right. how do we save what we invested and the answer was that you sell it off to sell the thing off and that's what happened and they sold it off to a group and the group took it public and nar probably made 50 to 100 million dollars on that deal which right. which could be a whole different rabbit hole on, on NAR and what that's a whole other as a matter of fact right now NAR has a program called Reach in which they do just that kind of thing, right? They'll take a new technology company that puts up money and then they'll mentor it and they'll introduce it and then they own an equity piece and then they own NAR owns, I don't know, like a hundred equity pieces now. At the end of the day, exposure. More exposure for more companies, for, for brokers, realtors, and so forth. And and why not? Us, us as brokers, we as brokers, uh, we're putting in the data. The data comes from us. We have the newest, most relevant data working where we are. And we're putting it in for free. And historically, as you're, as you're mentioning, millions of dollars. Really, it's cr the, this data flow has created billion-dollar enterprises. Billion, many billion dollar enterprises billion. the data. So at first the concept was so you had to at first we had to convince realtors because realtors believed that the value that they had was the fact that they had the data and that people had to come to you. How do you get them to come to you? Well they can't get the data unless they come to a realtor. And that right. was the way that it was. So the idea that you would put it up in the for the world to see it, that was kind of a really hard thing for people to swallow in the real estate industry, but they did because they could see that this was the future and this was where it was all going and that it made sense to put it up there. And so when I, I was the person that traveled across the country to all the MLSs 
after we got about 500,000 listings, we expanded that sales force out to about four people. But initially it was me and then Carl Demuse, who runs the MLS in uh, Northern Ohio Regional MLS. And that was our job was to go out and get these MLSs to sign up. And the, and the idea was exclusivity. Don't give your listing data to anybody. Put your listing data here on this website, Realtor.com, because here's what's going to happen. It's like the Super Bowl. And I had a Super Bowl trophy slide. It's like the Super Bowl. If the NFL decided to play the Super Bowl on 100 channels, then they couldn't charge $10 million for 30-second ads. Right. They'd be monetizing a different way. But they decided that the way to monetize was keep that content exclusive. It wouldn't take long before consumers would learn that if you want to watch the Super Bowl, this is where you go. And our theory was if we put all the listings in one place, it won't take the public long to learn. If you want to see what's for sale, this is where you go. And that keeps us under the control of the realtor community and any any profits that can be derived at some point could 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 come back to the real estate community. Well, what happened again when Microsoft went to zero, everybody gave all their data away. That's and right. that then then we couldn't be exclusive, couldn't charge, they spun it off and then and then what had to happen is Realtor.com had to create a new uh, business model. And well, over the years, they've all kind of evolved, right? So there was this data, yeah. had it for free. Now everybody has it. And it's really a commodity. And the idea was how do we now determine what the value is? Because we, we the industry, gave our data to these new startups. Because there were these new startups around 2006, 2007, 2008. Companies called like Zillow, crazy name, huh? And <laughs> Trulia, and all these. And they wanted to get listing data, but they didn't. They couldn't go to the MLS; wouldn't give it to them. And so, where would they get that data? And the answer was they could get it from aggregators, companies like ListHub and Point Two. And then I became the CEO of Point Two, and so we began aggregating data, providing data at no charge. Right. And these companies like Zillow and Trulia became billion dollar enterprises. That's your point. And how much of that money went back to the realtors? Not very much. As a matter of fact, what happened to your listing went up and then other people got the leads off your listing. And they were, and most of those platforms were charging others and, and so on. Truly as Zillow. They're, they 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 found the model. Not only did they got, they pulled the data, aggreg aggregated it from you and said, wait a minute, let's charge the realtors backwards. So the entire thing shifted. So for Fair 11 enough, years, yeah. yeah, for 11 years, Realtor.com was the number one most visited real estate website in the world. That's right. 11 years, number one. And I watched it. Hitwise was the website. You might remember, we'd go to Hitwise and we'd look at, we'd put up the websites. We'd watch what's number one, what's number two, what's number three. And it didn't, it took, it took a while, but Zillow passed Realtor.com. That's right. And uh, now Realtor.com was at a handicap because when it got spun off, an operating agreement got produced. At the time, it was a thousand page operating agreement. And it said, you can't put FISBOs on there. You can't be right. All the things that were of concern to realtors, realtor.com couldn't do. Well, Zillow didn't have those same restrictions. Zillow could do whatever it wants. So it really put realtor.com at an economic disadvantage. And so the rules then started to change for realtor.com. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to compete in the world with the other portals. And it, so and it did compete. It took first place again. Zillow truly overtook realtor.com. Then realtor.com came back ahead and above its competitors but now there's an even bigger competitor out there and i say competitor there's ice and, 
and why why does this matter i mean real estate today it's an asset class has no future markets you talk about this all the time but in essence we're a disconnected trading and settlement process right absolutely mls may feed up to realtor.com post lift 2.0 talk all of it but ice internet intercontinental exchange here comes ice the biggest thing since i would say rent coming online based on our conversations and ice is heavily invested in it systems and modernizing disparate trading systems bringing it all together so what just happened with ice and black knight that that is a big concern to us as realtors as brokers even as investors developers lenders what is happening there yeah and not as from my perspective not so much concern as as evolution yeah and the fact that we need to know about it yes right? because there's going to be opportunities we have to figure out how to play as this thing change as everything changes right so if you go back to like 2007, 2008, and even prior to that, back to Enron, okay. right? And the, remember the oil, the Enron, and they were yeah. they were like selling contracts and oil, but you didn't know what oil it was, and so a lot of money was lost. There was a lot of big issues, and and um, what became apparent to people is you have to be able to grade things to be able to invest in them. If you don't, then again, you're really taking big chances. And so in that time frame, in 2000, after that, 2007, 2008, and the big financial collapse, part of the reason for that were bad loans, right? That's a whole nother story. And a big part of that was really not having transparency into the assets. And another part of that was how much it cost to place a loan. That loans cost like seven to $10,000, which is ridiculous. And the, who discovered this? Who really was looking at this first were like the big money players like MBNA and Citibank and Chase and Wells Fargo and, and right and the GSEs, right? The government service enterprises like Fannie and Freddie, like Fannie and Freddie, right? And so they're all looking said, well, we got to, what's going to happen? Who's going to kind of try to fix this? Now, Fannie and Freddie kind of looking from the outside, but what was decided by all these big financial players was they needed to create this digitized loan process, which would lead to the digitization of real estate. And so the, the person's name, and I really hadn't followed him very much, but is worth following is Jeff Sprecher. And Sprecher then was brought in to start to, to create a system that could bring in data and information from all over a, high level, real capable. So now give you an idea of who ICE is, Intercontinental Exchange. They own exchanges around the world. And the, the big one that I always use as an example is this is the entity that owns the New York Stock Exchange, right? The, oh, and they create markets and they create futures markets. And so this is a big organization tasked with digitizing the housing finance system. And so to do that, they had to make acquisitions because, as you mentioned, part of the issue with the housing finance system is this, it's all separate and disparate and, and there is no one place, right? So it's difficult. And what happens when people loan it, and that's another issue, people don't even understand how the real estate finance system works. So here comes Sprecher and Intercontinental Exchange, and they, they're into the exchanging and creating the technologies that give insight and allow for you know 
faster trading, better trading. So this is a big company. If you haven't followed it, look it up, Intercontinental Exchange. Look up the acquisitions. I lose track of all the acquisitions. I write them down. Like they purchased MERS, right, which was the what they call the golden record, right? Because here's the problem. You get a loan. So let's talk about the housing finance system in general. People don't know how it works. And so people say, well, I'm going to get a loan on my house. Well, that's yeah. great. How come you can get a loan? Well, because I can go down to the bank and I can borrow the money. And so I get a loan. And then people say, and then if I don't pay it, the bank takes it back. Well, that's not really how it works at all, right? That's right. The fact is that the banks are the front people for all of this. The banks, the mortgage companies, and while there are portfolio lenders, the fact is that the housing finance system is government subsidized in this country through the GSEs, right? right. Through the government, yeah, government service enterprises. And so when we look at this and we see that there are these major entities that buy these loans. So there's, how come there's all this $17 trillion in the real real estate, the largest individual asset there is, and you mentioned that there's no futures market for it, but it's giant trillions of dollars in loans. Where does that money come from? Where did $17 trillion come from to finance? It didn't come from the bank. So what happens is you've got these people that are, that can handle money like banks, and they have capital and they will place that capital, but they try to place it with criteria so that they don't have to hold on to that loan. That's right. They're going to sell it to the next guy and the next guy. And this was a crisis, bad loans, breathing on a mirror. We all remember this if you're in real estate and you've worked through it. Plus 7000 to $10,000 to originate to put the whole thing in play anyway. Yeah. So, so it starts out. So you've got, so when you go to get a loan, the reason there's money there is because the institutions put this together and then they sell it to investors. And actually they'll sell it to the big loan. Most of them are bought by the GSEs, by Fannie and Freddie. And then those loans get packaged up mm -hmm. into securities That's right. and they're mortgage-backed securities. And those mortgage-backed securities are sold to pension funds, right? Mm -hmm. So if you work for the teachers union in California, there's a good chance that there are loans in support loan portfolio in the retirement plan. And if there's a collapse of the real estate market and the mortgage market, it's going to affect your retirement. Absolutely. And so, so the way this works is the loans are then placed, then they're purchased in what we call the secondary market. And the big buyer in the secondary market are the GSE, Fannie and Freddie. And they have a requirement. They're, they're independent companies. They're not the government, right? They're, you know, they're not the government. That's what we're told. Right? They're independent entity, but they got their own interests and they make money. And what's the government got to do with it? Well, they've got these GSEs have reserves they have to keep in case loans go bad. And in 2008, 2009, a lot of loans went bad. To say the least, and, yes. <laughs> and what happened was the amount that went bad exceeded Fannie and Freddie's reserves. And so they were basically insolvent. And so what happened was the U.S. government treasury stepped in. So they went into receivership and then conservatorship. And they're still in conservatorship. Right. So here we've got these entities that buy loans. But if the loans go bad, they don't have any enough reserves. If the loans go bad, who covers it? Treasury. Treasury is the U.S. government. So who really, if treasury has to keep these things in play, the money really comes from you and me. Then it's the that. taxpayers 
that give the treasury, right? It's a, so what we've got now is we've got the subsidized industry. We've got the big buyers of loans that create this housing finance, right, capability that are in big trouble. We've got the system that's all fractionalized and you can't really see and you can't measure risk. And so another thing that happens is you have uh, misplaced risk or you have misassigned risk to assets that people invest in. And so part of all of what ICE is trying to do is bring this together. Yeah, they want to be the kingpin and be able to digitize the loan process. Basically, this will eliminate probably a lot of small lenders and a lot of people who are mortgage loan officers. And it could even play into the real estate space. But what we're thinking is maybe realtors can kind of pick up the ball here on the loan side as all this thing starts to become visible. And so that's why we, and so ICE, Intercontinental Exchange, to accomplish what it wanted to accomplish, had to buy entities and it bought, and we've got a list we can make, how much money they paid for, for Elliot and how much money they paid for MERS and how much money they paid for the big one recently is Black Knight, which had included with it um, Optimal Blue, right? So loan origination. And so the purchase of Black Knight really was a big deal for ICE as it tries to build the pieces so it can have the digitized mortgage process. Start to finish. Bill, and so they can finish. build that interoperable platform. Start exactly. To finish, Start to finish. Gives them the ability to, to have quality loans in near real time. And as you pointed out, minimal risk because there's transparency into those into everything side by side. I know what the left hand is doing. I know what the right hand is doing. So at the end of the day, we can get to a point where we can rebalance that federal housing system, get everything uh, walking and talking the same. Because even candidly today, the MLSs and uh, Rezo, real estate standards, we don't we don't walk and talk the same. Commercial, we don't walk and talk the same. Anywhere in the country, we don't walk and talk the same, county to county. And once we get there, what's, what's really exciting, and we've touched on it, you and I watched twice, is that futures market right? Real-time transactions. It's funny. Uh, I talk about this stuff and a lot of times realtors' eyes will glaze over or investors or brokers, less so developers, securities experts. But I mean, if you're in residential real estate, commercial real estate, and I loved being helping build residential teams prior to working strictly commercial because they were, they were ahead with technology. Consumers demanded technology. They wanted to see it on the internet. So I, I got to sit there and watch as the same thing happened in commercial, but by understanding what is taking place, that's really today what's going to differentiate differentiate you from competition. That expertise, that confidence has to be there because if or when this happens and it's happening now, your consumers and clients and customers are going to see it. They're going to have confidence in their interest. They can find it on the internet. The internet may be a big and broken place, and I say that because how massive it is, but as ICE consolidates the system, Black Knight, CoreLogic. More and more of our clients are finding ways to access that data, that knowledge that it used to be institutional. Only we knew it. Nobody could call us out on it except our peers. And that is where we are today. So <clears throat> what about the economics of it all, the next steps? I mean, we are, we are in the midst of Web 3.0, we're on our way. So 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. How do you say it? I like the way you usually say it. What's the big differences? Web 1.0 was? 
Well, so so that's it. We're just kind of a side conversation. We can have it now, right? The technology, the underlying technology. Yep. And so people talk about Web3, you hear it a lot. Well, that doesn't mean anything to most people because they don't know what Web2 was or Web1 was, right? So to talk Web3, that's kind of like talking over most people's heads. But it's all about that data. And the realtors gave the data away into realtor.com, what became realtor.com, which then got turned into a model that made money on its own, which is now becoming part of a broader model, billion dollar industry with these other companies. So I would say, yes, it, it is over most people's heads because it's Web 3.0. What it was, all I know is it's Web, but it's about data. It's about yeah, ownership. so let's talk about Web, just real, real briefly. Yeah. Huh? So what was Web, what was the first phase of the internet? Well, it was, first of all, it was email and websites. That yep. was the use. Yes. What was the technology that was used? It was DNS, HTML, right? So, and what did we use it for? Email and websites. So when we talk about, you call it web one, but really it was the internet because the browser and the World Wide web didn't come along to like 92, 93, right? right? And the internet came around about 1968, was created in <laughs> 1968 by DARPANET. So, so you had the internet. And so this is like, I call it web one, internet one, right? It was the internet. Then we got the browser and the World Wide web. So the software was email and a browser. The technology stack was technology was DNS and HTML and HTTP, yep. and it was that, that was it. That was Web one, and then but it was read only. That's what we call. There it. we go. Read, read only. only. One of you, read only. Yeah, right? you could, all you could do unless you were a programmer, right? Yeah. So if you're you couldn't like go up and and make comments and you couldn't do that, right? You need a programmer to do that. And so people bought websites, but programmers had to build them for them, right? And then Microsoft actually came out with a product called Front Page, where you could start to build your own. But that that web point, that web one, or if you're looking at when people talk today, you know, web three, know that one was email and websites. Yep. Two then became the interactive web became read write, and so what happened was a new technology stack was created for what we then call web two, and that technology stack. Like you're probably familiar with, they call it the LAMP stack, right? Linux, Apache, MySQL, Linux, Apache, MySQL, Python, Perl, right? LAMP, the LAMP stack. And they, and so what that created, this new technology then allowed for engagement. So you couldn't get real engagement on in the first phase. In the second phase, which came about 2005, 2006, web, we call it Web2, and it really was the birth of the big social platforms because you could engage. So now you had read, write, the underlying technology changed and the underlying technology was the lamp stack. And then the uses changed. Really what happened was we've now had this engagement through giant social media platforms. Web two is really giant social media platforms. And so now remember when the web, the internet was created, it wasn't created for commerce. Right. It wasn't built for commerce, for communication in the event of a nuclear holocaust. And so um, um, it had to evolve. And when not allowed to conduct commerce on the first internet, or on the internet first. And as, as when commerce got introduced, like, I don't remember the year, 98, 99, and you could start taking credit cards online. Remember, it wasn't built for any of that. Consequently, right. we've got all of this. You need a password. You need another password. You need a new email address. You need something to identify, right? And it, 
we don't we don't recognize who you are you gotta go right so it became it's burdensome and so then now people are talking about web three right so what do they mean well they don't mean web two so web two was was read write web one was read only web three is what people are telling telling me is read write own because the new technology for the new web is blockchain and that's complicated we don't need to talk about that just understand it's a technology well, and, and allows, ownership and it's it allows for tracking and it allows for things you couldn't do with the old software with the old internet right the one we're using now and so you're gonna see with this with web3 lots of different changes because you can track things you can things that um you write can be tracked attribution can be given back to you i always used to liken this idea before we even talked about web3 to bmi and ascap if you're familiar with the music world somebody elvis presley record gets played whoever oil gets paid right and so Yeah, he wrote this all right. And so people have got different. Well, what about the producer? What about the director? And all these people got a piece. When that music gets played or utilized somewhere, all those people get paid. Well, what if listing information about property is put up on the web? Yeah, there's public information. But what if I went by and took pictures of it because I'm a realtor in my neighborhood? I'm I'm an expert in my neighborhood. I think people are interested in the neighborhood. So when I see the 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 city out there working on the street, I take pictures and post it on my website so all the neighbors can see it. Absolutely. And, um, all right, so there are... Or you re- claim, claim your own home and you update it, or commercially. I mean, these are platforms built on this. Uh, yeah, well, what if somebody What's takes happening? my picture and uses it on their platform? Mm-hmm. Well, before it was kind of hard to track it down, but with these newer technologies, and all we want to do here is kind of give people an idea. Why are we even talking about this? Right? It's because... There's going to be this tracking. It's all about all this data content. Believe it or not, listing is content for the big portals. That's what it is. It draws eyeballs because people are interested in it. They got people looking at the site. They can sell advertising. They can monetize around it. They'll make big money and realtors won't make anything. Even though we're the ones putting in the frontline data. We're we're putting in the most data. With the exception of assessors, we're the ones. and, And that's an important point that I was, I was working towards MLSs, associations, brokers are fueling billion dollar companies. But for the first time, there's now regulation, there's policy changes about data, about ownership. There's a, there's a, there are vehicles coming online or or coming into place where you can uh, advocate to own that data and get those royalties. I don't know how, I don't know which way it's going to go. I don't have that crystal ball. Uh, Realtor.com wasn't what you expected it to be when you helped found it as the RIN network. So, no, but I had the right idea. <laughs> if they had the way that I had laid it out, it'd be a different ball game today. Completely well, so go, how would you lay it out today? Well, What's well, the it, next was, step? It, was, it was exclusive. And realtors didn't give their data away to anybody else. And we would keep it exclusive on the website and then figure out ways to monetize around it. Once people learn what station the Super Bowl's on, Yep, they go there automatically. So, we, so let so stop distribution, stop syndication, and hold it all to your hold it all in house. Well, back in those days, there was no syndication or distribution. We didn't have to hold anything. Yes. All we had to do was get it, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's what we went out and did. We went out and got it. And so now, and then when we also started giving it away to everybody, I said, "Well, if you're going to give it away to everybody, then I'll go out and get it." 
because I had already done it once. I got it for Realtor.com the first time. I'll go out and get it and I'll put it in a language everybody can understand. Not me. I have a company that does this. And then we'll <laughs> give it to Zillow and we'll give it to Troya. Now, I want to charge them for it, but I don't know how much to charge. Right. I don't know what it's worth yet. And so before we try to charge for it, let's get your listings exposure. And once we figure out what it's worth, then we'll go back and start charging for it. Okay. And that was the plan. And that was the plan. That was and the now plan. they have all the exposure in the world and the, it's, uh, the train has left the station. The, the well, channel then, then, yeah, then, what, then what happens? So we figured out, you know, so I, I was working at Point Two then. I was CEO of Point Two Technologies up in Canada. And we went out and aggregated all this content, all of these listings. We normalized it. We provided it to the syndicators. And within our mind, someday we'd monetize it for the industry. We'd figure this out. We'd figure out what, because I would go up. I was on, for many, many years, I was on all the, you know, the big panels at Inman and at NAR. And as I got the time, and I would get on these panels with other people whose names you might know and they would all say no you never this data is not it's valuable but it's never going to be worth anything and i would you know i was like the data advocate right i would say no it's going to be worth a lot of money and you just don't know we just don't know yet oh no you'll never be fact is it's worth a lot of money we've proven that because all these billion dollar companies that have been created around that data and they'll make all kinds of excuses around why that's so but the fact is the data was the content that made it happen and so personal story. I was at point two and we didn't have enough money to go the next step. It takes capital to make things happen. Oh yeah. And it doesn't matter if you have the best idea in the world. If you don't have capital, you're not going to make it happen. And my C actually didn't served in a number of positions, but at the time he was the COO, he was the previous CTO and um, was a top programmer at point two, Zach Scott. And, uh, Zach and I were having these conversations about, we'll let the data go and then we'll bring it back. And this is going to be worth, this is huge. This is going to be worth so much money. And Zach said, yeah, you know, all we need is money. We're like, we're like, we know where the end of the rainbow is, but we we just need bus fare to get there. And so we had all this data. We had the distribution channels. We knew that these companies were built and they need it. We just needed to build out the technology the rest of the way. So we took the company to market. And, um, and the company was purchased. But the, And this was like the biggest uh, business lesson I ever learned. And that was that when you allow your company to be acquired, if you want to continue with the vision of the company you got to make sure the acquirer has the same vision you do that's right because if the acquirer doesn't have your vision your vision goes down the drain the acquirer buys it they own it they can do whatever they want with it and that's what happened to point two and so when point two was sold and it was sold to a company had a different vision what did it become so, at that point? well so here's what happened there were two syndicators in the marketplace, two companies that got all the MLS data, ListHub and Point2. Realtor.com bought ListHub. Took away about, and the capability now to turn off the valve to Zillow. Now remember, we went back and said that Realtor.com was number one, Zillow came up. So now, yeah. what is, how's Realtor.com gonna compete? They'll just buy the source. And if they right. can buy the source, they can turn the valves off and they can, they can uh, starve Zillow. And so they bought ListHub, which was the biggest player. Point two is the second. There are only two players in this marketplace. And, but just coincidentally, ListHub and Point two, we both sold. We didn't know, but we both sold our companies at the same time. Pretty close. 
list stuff sold first, we sold second. We were in a silent period at point two when the list up sale got announced. And so at that point, it was, the writing was on the wall. Zillow was going to lose its listing data from ListUp. It right. really needed to come after point two. And so I got a call from Spencer the day after they announced the ListUp deal. And, and we had, but we had already sold point two. Yeah. And from, for about two years after that, Spencer made the attempts to buy point two from the acquirer because the acquirer was not in the, didn't have the same vision I had. The acquirer, the vision of the acquirer was where can I buy a company that has lots of programmers that I can use in my worldwide business? Where can I buy a company that has a revenue stream that I can add to my revenue stream? Where is there a company that's bought technologies that I can bring into my technologies? I'm not looking to buy a company to execute some other person's dream. <laughs> right. I mean, that was the, the acquirer. <laughs> and so point two was acquired. I didn't even know when we were acquired, the biggest lesson I ever learned. I didn't even know at the time. I thought that the company that was buying us was going to pursue our dream because we had created like a hundred page. We called them a confidential information memorandum. We hired a banker to take us to market to sell the company or to bring capital into the company. And there are different types of capital that can come into a company. I learned a lot during this process. It cost me a lot, but I learned a lot. And uh, we were acquired by a company, had a different vision. And then what happened eventually, within a couple of years, our acquirer sold the real estate syndication piece to ListHub. And at that point, ListHub, which was owned by Realtor.com, had all of the oxygen that Zillow needed to stay alive. And they started to turn it off. And as they started to turn it off, Zillow needed to find new source of content. So Zillow went out to MLSs to get direct feeds, which they had, they had to do because Realtor.com was turning off the closing the valve, you know, on changing the data contracts, changing what you could do with the data contracts, restricting Zillow's business. And so Zillow had to do something. And so it did, it started to get broker contracts. But I will tell you, because I've done this twice, to get all of the contracts in the country, the data contracts from MLSs, is no easy chore. And it takes a concerted effort. Part of it is just the governance structure of an MLS and an association has got volunteers, they change every year, right? So they've got committee structures, you gotta know how to get into and participate you know, through this process, it takes time. So Zillow actually tried to do that and they had some degree of success, but then they figured out, you know, the easiest way to get all the data, easiest way, you just become a broker. And then if you're a broker, you're entitled to an IDX feed, that's internet data exchange. If you're a broker, you can get the data feed. If you're a broker in every state and you join every MLS, you can get the data feed from every MLS. And so people want to know why did, why did Zillow become a broker? It's not because they wanted to compete with the brokerage industry. How it might have evolved and where it is now is another story. But what happened when they made that decision is they were being strangled by Realtor.com. And I'm not saying I'm not making a judgment. I'm just telling you what was happening. It was a business. It, it's it simply business. what happened. They you I, know, take away the fuel for the fire. Uh, you take away the, what they can sell, their goods and services effectively. Uh, Realtor.com being the wholesaler in this, in this uh, parallel. And they have to go get it direct from the manufacturer. So, and they did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, forever changing uh, the rules for the MLS and, and all of it, right? Trulia and others. And then uh, 
residential realtors I know back in 20, let's say 2012, 13, 14, paying 40,000, 50,000, $60,000 a year for leads. That could have been. That's right. So that really, really, the internet did change to me. The real estate industry is all for me was, all, and I, you know, I'm a broker. I've been a broker since 1977. I'm still a broker. I got my sales license in 1975, right? And so to me, the real estate business has always been about relationships. Yep. It's not been about worth. In fact, I went to work with a company where they had a sales room. And yeah. the sales room, they all had leads, and I couldn't believe it. They would pay him. They all they knew was a name and a phone number. These people on the phone, right? And it was all about leads and working leads and generating leads. And to me, that wasn't what real estate was about at all. Real estate was about relationships. To matter of fact, for me, real estate was about owning. Right? I got into the real estate business. I didn't get into the real estate business because I wanted to sell real estate to other people. You wanted you wanted the first shot at the real estate yourself. I wanted to get the real estate. Just so happened to selling it to other people allows you to eat while you're acquiring the real estate that you want to acquire. And so it never was about going out and selling. So the, the whole model changed really when all this emphasis on leads as a result of the internet. Now people are, that's all they think about. Yeah. And it's all where about- Where do I get leads. my leads? <laughs> so where lead, so that, that's not the real estate. And I know that's the way it works and that's where people think it's going. But to me, still the most important piece, and I think it's going to get come back to this, is trust and confidence. And it's about- becoming treating every buyer and seller as an investor because that's what they are and we talked about this back in the 1990s and it didn't happen but it's going to start happening now and that is the role of the realtor is going to change well it did change but it changed into lead generation right it's going to change into a cons more of a consultative business again because people are going to want to know more about the properties more of that information is going to be transparent and who's going to be the expert to talk about it the realtor so really if you want to carve out your position practicing real estate in the future you need to start paying attention to the information you can accumulate about properties and then how you can articulate that to interested parties and if you can do that better than your competition forget this idea of buying and chasing leads that doesn't do anybody any good. That's a disservice, I think, to people who are real estate licensees. They think now you we really are putting them in a salesperson box as opposed to a consultant's box. As an advisor, uh, as an what advisor. they should be advising an expert in an area in a market. Technology, I as a broker, I would I would always say, you know, I'm in the I, I'm working in the, the best time in this industry because the technology is available for me to go get and grow as much business as I want because I can learn about a person, about an entity. I can start to build that network, that relationship over time, not by leads because <laughs> lead buying is a trap. It's, it's, uh, it's the same as saying marketing is going to sell this property as opposed to saying, no, I'm going to sell, sell this property. It's not just putting it up there. Things don't sell themselves except marketing. Um, that's the only thing that can sell itself. It's the greatest marketing design of its kind. And the a great example, a friend of mine quoted the other day, he goes, you don't see Salesforce marketing. They go out and they sell. But to your point, but here we are. We've got to go back to this consulting foundation. Uh, you know, the settings that my, my grandmother used to go get in a plane, fly the plane, she had a pilot's license, string properties together, looking down at them, find the right ones build out contiguous properties, develop it as a broker. Why? Because like you, she wanted to 
first shot at those properties and then to sell other properties and so on. So I get well, it. I, saw it. I buy every property at least 3% right. <laughs> really? I buy every property at least 3% right. Well, because you're taking your commit. Well, right, right. Uh, depending really on what you charge. <laughs> right? Right. Now, back, this was the, I don't sell real estate for other people anymore. It's been a long time, right? But when I was accumulating properties for myself, that was my whole concept. I got into real estate to acquire properties. That was another thing. I didn't have a lot of money. I was a naval officer. I got ten. I got out of the Navy. I got at kidney stones. I was in for ten years. I get out. I get a lump sum payment. I get ten grand, which is nothing today, right? Well, it was enough to buy my future wife a car and right and, and to, but it wasn't a whole lot of money. And so when I got into real estate, it's like and, and then you get into real estate and there's no salary, right? and so it's like okay, now what are we going to do? Let's let's find investors. Let's make if we can't find them, let's make them. And so I, I found a property I thought was a great property. And I had a real estate business partner. I said, it's a great property. Let's figure out how we can buy it. And I went and said, Dad, I found a great property. Do you have a couple thousand bucks? You know, and he talked to his, his family. You know, you got a couple thousand bucks. I talked to people I, that I knew. Hey, I got found this great property. You got a couple thousand bucks. And first, before you knew it, I had enough money to buy this property. And so I was able to put this together and bought this as a condo in a new track. <laughs> And bought this property. This is when you, when you could sell one phase to the next, it would go up, right? Yeah. And so bought that one property. And then we had this small group of people. So I earned a commission buying the property. Yeah. And then it needed to be managed. So I started a little property management company. So we managed, we got a management fee. And then when we turned it, somebody had to list it. I got to list it for sale. The, a couple of years later, I got a little bit more sophisticated and I learned more about reg about securities and how you could actually put these things together and how you could charge fees beyond the commissions. Right. We called them syndication fees. And so we could charge management fees. And so I actually did that for a while. So we would make our own customers. And today I still think that's a valid strategy. So go back to why do people get into real estate? I want to get into real estate because I want to buy and chase leads. I don't think that's anybody's dream. No. Right. Buy and chase leads. Yeah. Glenn, uh, Glenn Glary, Glenn, Glenn Ross. Nobody wants to be sitting there buying, uh, making phone calls on a list of leads. And yeah. really, what you did manually, friends and family, right? You went to your friends and family, got the money together, bought your first property. Technology is here to help us accelerate the way to those people, but not to, if, if you're buying a lead list, so is somebody else. And that is never going to work. Because now you're bombarding that person the wrong way. If you're creating value and 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 you have that confidence, that market knowledge, and you're presenting that that property like you did that condo, this is why, this is what, this is how, and they had confidence in you, they bought it. If you'd called up a list of people who bought condos, they may not buy that first one from you. They may not even talk to you. But if you, as you started to do that, these people became available. I'm assuming because they started to know who you are. So yeah, uh, as Regan says, our show producer, you can't get to 100 if you don't get to one. Get your license. You start buying and selling for yourself, uh, which is funny. I think I remember my real in 20, 2006. I remember a real estate trainer saying that to me. Most of you are never going to sell a thing or buy. You're only going to buy your first home. That's what you're here getting licensed for. Little did anybody in the class know that getting a license has nothing to do with actually transacting real estate. It's just the framework of it all. You had to learn and become an expert which 
hats off to NAR for all of its different programs and certifications because that's the difference. Getting a license is just getting a license. Well, so you touch on a really important point, it's, and it's all relationship tied, and that is trust and confidence. Yep. Trust and confidence. Why did my dad give me money? Because he trusted me. Right? That's the easiest level of trust, right? And so there are different levels of trust that you need to build with people before they're going to open up their checkbook to you. And so you build those levels of trust. I went, I actually, at one point in my career, was working for a group of real estate syndicators. So I met this group of real estate syndicators that needed a real estate broker. They weren't real estate. They didn't have a real estate. Like they needed a real estate broker. They owned property in multiple states. And they needed to have a real estate broker who understood real estate. So they became a client of mine. And I, so I could talk to them about why, why is there value in this? What's going to happen? And then I found out that they were buying specific areas. So really what was valuable to them was local information, local information about the opportunity, because if they had local information about the opportunity, they could then convince people to give them money to buy real estate. And I wanted them to be able to convince people to buy real estate because I was a broker. You're making, was, you've got 3% or more. I was the guy who was going to go out and buy, help them find the properties for these people that were raising them. So now I wasn't raising money anymore. I found people who raised money that did this. And so in this particular group, what I did, this was right before the convention center was built in San Diego. And it's all about trust and confidence and knowledge and knowledge is power. I did a tour. I called it the San Diego tour. These people that I knew, these syndicators would invite their clients to go on a tour with me. And I had a van and I would put these people in a van and I had a route and I would drive down. And if you know San Diego, I'd go down to where the convention center is. And I would say, there's going to be a convention center. It's going to do this. It's going to increase revenue. It's got all the, you know, all the stuff I got from the Chamber of Commerce. Then I would go <laughs> up the avenue and I'd go and say, see, now when we build a convention center, it's going to have need for hotels. We're going to need more apartment buildings. And by the time I got them back to the office, they were sold. They knew that San Diego was a growing city. Rents were going to increase. And then they went back into the office and they write their checks to these guys. And then I would get to go out and buy the properties for them. And then I had a management company and I would manage them. So different ways to build your customers. So in that case, I helped people build their customers by knowing the market, knowing the product, the real estate. So and I could help them be confident in it. Not just knowing it, the nuances, the A, B, C, and you know, eventually gets to A, B, C, and what eventually becomes Z, which I've said it before, that's something that AI can't do today. It won't be able to do until everything gets, speaks, walks, and talks the same language. And even then, who knows, right? The nuances of what's happening. Uh, there, are, there are so many things that will rem remain opaque um, you look at commercial now i've got a platform we aggregate data commercially and i check i still check many sources for many things but the most informative thing i do every month is i attend a local broker's luncheon that's been happening for 30 years and what people will say to each other because they know trust and have confidence in each other in that room exceeds anything i can aggregate even at a hyper local local level because of that network. Your network is your network. network. Key networks. It takes a network to beat a network, right? So it's network. So we used to have, you know, pre-internet. I sold real estate pre-internet. And so we had, we called them exchangers meetings. And exchangers, title companies would give their offices. You could, and so we had two or three of them around town. 
and then they would bring donuts and bagels and stuff. And there were pitch sessions. Now this was apartment buildings and commercial property. So it wasn't stuff in the MLS. And so what happened, the way it worked, at least when I sold, was you'd have real estate brokers who had their own portfolio of clients, and there are certain properties in San Diego that never never come up for sale. And right. they only had, they'd get passed down from in the family, or they would get sold from broker to broker, and the only way you could ever own one of these properties is if you knew the broker that knew the family that owned it. And the, where did you run into these brokers? At the exchangers' meetings. And you would go to the exchanges meeting and you knew these people and you knew, and then you would do pitch sessions. And sometimes I can't remember what we called it, you know, haves and wants were pitches, but then you'd do a thing where you'd just deal making. You'd do, I can't remember what we call it, but you'd do a, uh, a deal sheet, term sheet. You'd say, okay, because I, I w had some clients that owned properties in Austin, Las Vegas and Arizona, and they were trying to sell them. It was in the eighties and they were trying to get rid of these things. So I would go to these, to these exchangers meetings at the time, I'd say, I've got uh, 10 houses in Las Vegas and $200,000. Then the guy say, and, and I need to get rid of it. And the guy say, I got 30 units on Broadway. They're all studios. <laughs> right? And you write up a deal. Well, they would write up a deal and then you'd look, yeah, and then we'd take them back to the principals. We'd say, here, we're kind of thinking about this. What do you think? And we'd come back and we put a deal together. And so you're right, that luncheon you go to, those exchangers meetings, that was the name of the game. And it was about trust and confidence. It was about knowing people. And, um, it's a relationship business. Absolutely. And 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 you talk about the deal making, right? So that is the name of the game, ICSC, now the Innovate, Innovating Commerce Service Serving Communities. Uh, they, do, they do large gatherings, conferences every year. And two days, deal making. That is, that is what it's called. That is the sessions because the, the principals, the brokers all get together. They all meet. They sit there with those term sheets and they talk turkey, so to speak, and put deals together. And some of these deals uh, take a year, take two years. They show up at one meeting in May, show up the next the next year to close that same deal. But you know, we're talking large-scale deals. The majority of real estate professionals, realtors, uh, you know, smaller the deal, the quicker it transact, I think is a fair statement for anyone. Uh, less complexity. There's still that network and growing it and, and, and belonging to it. NAR being the biggest in the country as one of them, uh, primarily residential, but uh, they do house. And house may not be the best word. I'll let you correct me here. So CCIM, they're one of the oldest, most trusted educator and commercial. SIOR, office. Uh, office brokers, office leasing, and industrial. I mean, there there are these groups we can join, these networks, and time and time again, it proves out that being that network, knowing those people is what you need. This technology will just help us in the uh, in-between deal-making. Let's, let's say it that way. Yeah, well, and you mentioned NAR. I mean, you know, I'm an advocate of organized real estate, right? So I'm an advocate for NAR. They don't pay me for that, but I'm an advocate for NAR. Matter of fact, I pay them, right? And I'm an, advocate for state, yeah. so I'm an advocate for state associations and I'm an advocate for local associations. And I believe from the bottom of my heart, and I can give you an example, that you participate in these organizations and you're going to make money and you're going to meet people. And when I, I was president of my local board in 1993 and the executive officer, which is a staff position, Walt Pukowski, who now runs the San Francisco Association of Realtors and MLS, I told Walt. That when this is when I serve my year as president here, someday I'm going to write a book how I turned a year of volunteering into a multi-million dollar business. 
how I turned a year of volunteering into a multi-million dollar business. What underlies all of that? Networking. That's right. It was about networking. It was about creating the networks and what the what participating at the local association level as president allowed me to do. It gave me visibility. It got me invites into all the brokers' offices, and I utilized that to build to build my network. Right, and so um, it was your platform. Was, it was your stadium. It was the platform. It was the stage. The platform. And and you mentioned you know SIOR and CCIM to me is the best designation. It's you know the people I know who are CCIMs are. Just head and shoulders, boy. They're just top-notch uh, practitioners. So yeah. I, you know, I love the CCIM certification. So NAR has certifications and designations, and they're just educational programs that result. People call it alphabet soup. They say nobody knows about it. I say you know about it, and if you know about it, that's all that matters. And if you know about it, you can explain it to a consumer. Oh, consumers don't know. Consumers don't care. Yeah, they will. When I'm done talking to them about it. <laughs> well, it's a, a level. Creative. It's an expectation of a certain level of confidence and competence. You have to have a certain level of competence to get these designations, yeah, especially absolutely. the CCIMs and the SIORs of the world. You have to have closed X amount of deals before they'll even consider talking to you. Yeah. So it's it's the original. This CCIM was before there was real estate degrees, right? So and like like NAR, your EPRO, we'll get you online. We'll do that because people started to go, how do I get online? Um, and and so we created that course, right? Oh, you did. I did recall that. Uh, my yeah. wife was uh, is, is an e-pro. Uh, there you go. Yeah. The so, but back to back to back to ice. Why it matters and all of this this well commercially this mushroom of of from eighty vendors to eight thousand. NARS so, reach program. Go ahead. Yeah. So mention uh, ice again because we're going to come back and talk about ice a lot of different times, right? So one of the major recent acquisitions attempted acquisitions is black knight and black knight is an mls vendor but it's more than that much more than that we think of it as an mls vendor, right and they own optimal blue and uh, collateral analytics which people don't think about so as ice is building this digitized loan process re just redoing the entire mortgage market as they do that they're buying the pieces and one of the big pieces they bought 13.1 billion dollars they paid for it and something like a multiple of 12 right 12 times you know brokerage firms sell for multiples of a half <laughs> a half to one right yeah. but uh ice and black knight purchased something like 12 i think was the most huge why because it fits into their big plan now it the the Department of Justice got it. They think, oh, no, too much control for ICE. So they want to look at this. And then, interestingly enough, Fannie Mae came out against the acquisition. Now, you got to remember, you got the primary market and the secondary market, and ICE is pretty much getting control of the primary market. The GSEs got control of the secondary market. Now, the GSEs are in conservatorship anyway. They really shouldn't even be in business. If you think about it, the U.S. government's underwriting this. If you could bring private capital in to replace the GSEs, you probably really ought to do that. That's the now. That's the big argument. That's the big conversation. The big conversation is: Do we really need GSEs? To what degree? Can't we have a housing finance industry financed by private capital, as opposed right. to the government and government guarantees? And the answer is: If we could make risk more visible, if we could price risk properly. We could bring more capital into the marketplace for the finance and we probably wouldn't need the GSEs. Now, the GSEs don't like that, even though they're in conservatorship. They don't like that idea. So what happens is you got black, you have um, 
ICE with the Black Knight acquisition, and you've got who's opposing it? Fannie. Because ICE is getting control of the primary market. Fannie's got control of the and the GSEs of the secondary market. ICE could actually jump in so and take yeah. control of it, right? Because they got the technology, right? And so- Just as Realtor.com choked out Zillow, now here so, you go yes, again, if they've got so, the technology and the data, go ahead. Who's again? Now, ICE's technology, I think, advanced to Realtor.com and Zillow and the rest. Of course. Right? Yeah. Um, and in a much better position than they are. So here, so here you got this where there is this major acquisition you've been reading about, but it, it's not done yet. And the major obstacle at this point is Fannie Mae, who actually is a competitor. Guys. Well, and, and ICE acquired Ellie Mae, Mortgage Origination 2020. So Fannie, Ellie. Well, yeah, a little bit, Ellie, a little bit different than Fannie and Freddie. But yeah, they acquired Ellie for, and they acquired MERS and they acquired, um, there's a, a simple file. There's a number of them. And we'll post that number. You know, there's a, a five, they spent like, you know, $30 billion before the Black Knight acquisition. And, and for anyone who doesn't know, Black Knight, sits uh i wouldn't say behind it but it's provides basic foundational data for the mls to operate tax data that's so one of, yeah that's the thing we just all know for those that don't know yeah. <laughs> that's what we know it for but yeah. it owns optimal blue we take a look at optimal blue and loan origination and all the different things it's in but yeah we know black knight is an mls provider as a vendor right and if you can't rate it you can't grade it and, and then part of the ice concept is an ice this really came from ice if you can't trade what you can't grade and so that's part of the problem if you don't know what the neighborhood's like where the loan is. What about the commercial? What about the Amazon center that's going to go in down the street from the house that's got the loan on it that you're going to buy? And so they can't grade and they're buying portfolios. And then if things start to go south, these portfolios lose value. And remember, these portfolios are they create mortgage-backed securities and sell them to you and our pension funds. So, right. right. So there's a lot of concern about how this might work and how this works. And so everything's taking place. ICE is moving down that path. And Black Knight was a purchase and there's an obstacle in the way right now. And so that's the latest on that. Right. There's there's pushback on that purchase. ICE is probably thinking if that purchase is, you know, goes off the rail, what's our next step? What do we do? And so you, you got to be thinking that they're thinking that. Right. They're really sophisticated people. Well, right. and uh, Core Logic, I believe, was was had a you have go, you have Core Logic behind Black Knight, not behind, but sitting shoulder to shoulder. Core, well, Core Logic, yeah, Black Knight, CoStar, really. Mm -hmm. Commercial really, CoStar. You, you think about yeah. CoStar and what they're doing in the commercial space, and so and actually, the residential space. They're buying up. They're coming this way. Yeah, they're exactly. So, actually, if you could look at Ice and CoStar, it's kind of like in the same world. And the question is, who's going to come out on top of the real estate piece of this, CoStar or ICE? There's an article worth reading. There's an article worth writing and reading. I know who I'm rooting for, but um, we won't say it here. But anyway, that's what's happened. It's going to create competition in the marketplace, a lot of interesting things. And so a year from now, people might wake up in real estate and find out they don't have the same job that they thought they had. Well, they there's right they're consultants they've had the same job they ju they're just led astray by leads and and dial and, and there <laughs> might not be enough consulting to go around for all the people <laughs> right uh that is that has been a that's always the case yeah that's always been a a, a call to arms and yeah. <laughs> many yeah. times over that's a fair it, point 
let me add a point, one more point here on um, trust and confidence and building networks. And that, and this, you're going to see a lot more of this because this is another great point. Land use policy in the United States is changing. Land use policy in the United States is changing. It's going to change greatly. There's money behind it. There's policy behind it. You're not going to recognize the things that take place in the next couple of years. So land use policy is changing dramatically. There's going to be, that means if you're a real estate person, that means opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so if we know that there's funding and policy, that's going to create opportunity. And so I'll go back to my example of driving uh, potential investors through San Diego. Well, so I would drive them through a part of town in San Diego called Mid-City. Now, Mid-City was the part of San Diego between Highway 94 and Highway 94 on the south and, um, and, and downtown on the south, Highway 8 on the north. La Mesa, which is a small city on the east and the ocean, right, on the west. So that area, kind of, that's the mid-city area. And part, part of that was, was blighted and run down. And the city got money available from the federal government to hire consultants in 1981 and send the consultants out to all of the businesses in the mid-city area and explain the revitalization process and explain block grant financing and explain how and why the city was interested in improving the neighborhoods. Because if you improve the neighborhoods, you increase the tax base, you increase revenues to the city. So the city was willing to invest money to teach people about revitalization that would increase the tax base. And the city got the money from the federal government because the federal government wanted this to happen too. Now we're in that kind of that same ball game now. Now I participated in it. I was a new real estate broker. It was 1981. I got my broker's license in 77. I bought the car wash. I bought some property up in the mid city area Had a little one bedroom house on it. We made that our real estate office. And this consultant from the city comes in and explains to us what's going on. And we're brand new. There's four of us, brand new young real estate brokers. We say, ah, we're behind it. We'll go to all the meetings. We'll go to the city council meetings. And we started to participate in that. And sure enough, over the years, the revitalization took place. And that part, that part of the city is completely turned around. A house in the North Park area that you might have been able to buy for $40,000 back then or $30,000 is $600,000 today. And it's the, it's the place, right? They've changed the whole look and feel and they brought in funding. The city made funding available, but it took private, you know, private enterprise. The people who own the businesses had to say, yes, we want to get involved. Yeah. We want those trees in here. Yeah. We want new bus stops. Where's the money come from? Oh, the money's there. Yeah. We want to paint the signs new. Yeah. We want new sidewalks. And, and, and so then when I would give my tour, I would drive up and I would say, notice the new sidewalks. That came right. The city's going to spend more money here, and it was all part of why I knew my neighborhood, and I was able to transfer that trust and confidence through knowledge, so that people were willing to open their checkbooks and invest. Yeah, and, you're the original uh, aggregator, as at least in my neighborhood. neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, uh, to your market, and, and that's really the point of it all. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, I love it. Uh, do you, and you don't drive the tour anymore. You use Google Earth and. You only buy and sell for yourself, but it'd be interesting to, sh- it's a shame you didn't have a video camera sitting on your dashboard then with the, with the recording then for now. You know what? You're absolutely right. But, and what I was teaching realtors when the digital camera first came out was take your digital camera with you, wherever you go and take pictures of everything. Memory's cheap. Take pictures of everything because 10 years, 20 years, 30 years will be here before you know it. And you'll be the only realtor in town that's got pictures of that building before the remodel. 
Yeah. Well, and 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 to your point, redevelopment as these um, mixed use developments, re revitalization progress pro programs, government funds. I mean, they can make or break a inner city or turn around a community. Zoning was there to plan, and zoning is changing. With change means opportunity. Now we zoning, as brokers are at the forefront. Go ahead. So a lot of people say zoning has failed. Zoning has failed for a number of reasons. Zoning's got a real dark history if you look at it. So zoning has failed, and the states, in this case, in my state, California, is usurping local authority around zoning. And sure. what we've got, and because we've had this zoning and local control, but look at all the problems we've got. Housing affordability. We, people can't afford to buy houses. The zoning isn't working because people can't afford to buy things. And so in our state, California, the legislature has said pretty much no more single families. You can have a lot zone for single family, but you can build two units on it. Or you can build. So these are things people ought to research. They ought to research SB, Senate Bill 9 and 10 in California, SB 9 and 10. And they're going to be in six major cities in California in September. Uh, a fellow I know, Ed Pinto, who works for American Enterprise Institute, who testifies before Congress every year about housing, he's going to be traveling the state of California talking to people about SB 9 and 10, which is going to increase density. Very important for realtors and for people interested in real estate to know what that means. And uh, Ed Pinto's coming to town. He's coming to San Francisco, Sacramento, San Diego, and three other places I can't remember off the top of my head. But if you're a California realtor, you need to go to one of these events and listen to what Ed has to say, because it's going to give you an advantage because yeah. AB, SB 9 and 10 are going to be the talk of the town. Whether you like them or not, you need to know about them, right? There's there's huge money and, and there are develop, developers dedicated to coming in and overriding local zoning laws for affordable housing. That municipality didn't keep up. They show up and they build these apartment buildings with affordable as a, a portion. Why? Because as you said, housing is necessary. Now I can't or wouldn't blame zone, just zoning on on affordability, the affordability crisis. Oh, no. There are other, but outside of that, you know, spot on. You and I could talk for hours on all of this and go every which way. We have um, got a lot of paths we can walk down for sure. The I want to uh, twelve forty two here. We've been on for an hour and forty two minutes, so this is our longest conversation one on one. What is the biggest takeaway outside of go to your local zoning meetings? Hell, you don't even have to go. I think they're on Zoom now. Check the zoning minutes and federal funds. You listed two local to your state. Is there anywhere else people should be tuning in uh, outside of the data advocate? And, and yeah, that is where they should be tuning in. Well, we're, we're trying to keep up with all this at the dataadvocate.com. So if you go there, we're going to do our best, continue to do our best to, to write about this. Yes, I would go to... AEI. This is one of the best resources. Matter of fact, they have a toolkit and it's an amazing toolkit. What if you bought this property and you made these changes and what would happen? And I'll send you the link address. It's amazing, right? Because uh, you did, but it's yep, really important to start to look at smart growth, smart planning, using the data to help you make decisions. So data to drive decisions from data to insight idea. So if you go to the housing center of AEI, that's a great place to go. Um, AmericanEnterpriseInstitute.org. Another one is Up for Growth, UpForGrowth.org, where there were 3.5 million units short, and everybody says we're 3.5 million units short, but nobody's put a plan together to do anything about it. But this nonprofit has, 
And so I think that's a valuable place to go into. The Urban Institute is another. There's plenty of good resource available to people to start to learn this. And um, it's, I think every day in your plan, as you do your planning in solitude every day, put, give a little time to learning a little bit about the, the growth opportunities in your area. Go to the AEI site. I wrote them down. Another one is foottrafficahead.org. Foot traffic ahead. Another thing that people are talking about, you know, this is more density. Increasing density to increase walkability. Increasing walkability means less driving. Less driving means a more clean environment. There's all these reasons, right? Then people say, I don't really want to walk. And then they talk to the millennials and they say, I really like this idea, right? So now we're back into know your audience and in real estate development. You mentioned mixed use. Mixed use has been around since they started building buildings. Back in the old days, you you know, you go to old parts of town. I'm, I had an aunt that owned a owned a like a little grocery store, and they lived upstairs. This was very common, right? Mixed use kind of. And and now a lot of these projects to get them use, right? Well, it's it for the town to sign on. You you got to go yeah. mixed use to for because the end of the day, you've got to the town has to approve. The neighbors have to approve. Unless it's being superseded by the government. And now you hit another point. It's coming down the line. And that's this whole idea of NIMBYs. NIMBYs. NIMBYs are destructive. Not in my backyard. I mean, this is the craziest thing I ever heard of. It probably started in California. But, you know, so I'm a real estate guy. And when I buy real estate over the years, when I would buy real estate, I would buy it based on what it was zoned. And what it was zoned would tell me what I could do with it. And what I could do with it was going to tell me probably how much money I could make. Yep. And so I bought real estate. I held it. That was my thing. I would buy and hold it. I would be if I bought real estate to build something on it and held it for 30 years and then had all the neighbors tell me they didn't want it. That's baloney. So having the community being able to have input on what you build on your property, that's baloney. And that's been going on and it's outrageous. And that's why we don't have enough housing because nobody wants the housing built in their backyard. And so NIMBYs, NIMBYism. Well, thank goodness we've got a new movement coming, and that's YIMBYs, the yes in my backyard people. <laughs> and the yes in my backyard people, they want this kind of thing, right? And so, but the, the NIMBY, the, the, the ability for the people that live in the area to supersede the zoning, to me, is a sin. Yeah. And I understand concerned neighbors and all of that. I'm one, right? And I own real estate, live in the neighborhood. At the same time, if it's zoned for, if the government said this is the structure, then to allow people to invest based on that and then to let the people who live there override it at some point in the future, that's just not fair. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. Even Anytime zoning by right is can be overruled means the plan is out the window. That's the, the bath and the bathwater gone for the owner, the investor, the developer. Because as you said, pointed out, if you can't, rate it and you can't understand what it's worth and what it will be worth because there's no regulation around it that's basically what that is taking away that regulation that ability to to plan for yeah, so we'll can't see grade, can't grade what you can't grade so i'll give you another story so there's a big lot here in san diego that's been controversial for years because the neighbors don't want it so people want to build apartment buildings there and people have tried to build different things there and they won't let them build anything and so recently they got a church got approved. Now I'm thinking a church is great because it's only busy on Sunday. Churches don't pay taxes. <laughs> and so the neighbors ought to love this, right? So the neighbors, nope, they don't want a church. So they fight that. Now guess what? They got homeless camps. 
Right. I got all these homeless, and now they're complaining about the owner. <laughs> the owner should do something about this. Right. It's and not, meanwhile, he's been trying to do something, and he's been shut down. Yet. Time and time again, and yeah. and you'll and that story's nationwide. You owners getting stuck, unable to move that property, and although real estate is generational wealth, yeah, you know, still taxes have to be paid. And if it's not an if it's not a tax producing property at an optimal level, Shelton's a great example of this. Huge uh, here in Connecticut, everywhere and anywhere there could be something, there is something. Uh, we are supported by those office buildings, those retail shopping centers. This this mix. Uh, unlike other towns where the town wouldn't have it. The people wouldn't have it. So they pay the brunt of those taxes. Uh, and this is interesting. In San Francisco, San Francisco's uh, trying to pass an, an a vacancy tax. A vacancy tax. Wow. So you, know, you can't get – it's hard to move tenants out of buildings in San Francisco. you got to give them all kinds of stuff. It's, and if you get a vacancy and you're a mom and pop, you might not want to put anybody else in there because it costs you forty grand to get them out. And wow. so San Francisco, they don't, the city doesn't like this, so they're actually trying to pass a vacancy tax. So if, you're, if your building is vacant, they're going to tax you on it. Now, part of the group they're going after for the vacancy tax are all the in, uncompleted – Residential property. So if somebody builds a high-rise building in downtown San Francisco and it's got 300 vacancies because it's not done yet, yeah. vacancy tax. Yeah. And, and the model to build that and own it and develop it would not include that whatever percentage. I mean, that could kill the deal in and of itself or at least kill a huge amount of profit. Uh, and many of these projects are built in stages because of cash flow. Now you want to take that away with a vacancy tax? Or... Yes change the entire way it's approved. You'd have to approve it in stages, start separating it out. Wow. Uh, always a lot to talk about with you, Saul. And our audience, thank you for tuning in. As a special thank you, speaking of networking, CRE Tech New York 2022, to our listeners exclusively, use Creco 20NY for 20% off. That's CRE Tech New York, CRE Tech New York, and let's not forget, download our show anywhere you get your audio. Subscribe to the YouTube channel to learn more from Saul. Saul, I believe you also have a YouTube channel, The Data Advocate, so you can find Saul Direct there as well. And do share, rate, and review us. Saul, I want to invite you back because I want to continue this conversation. We may even break this episode into two episodes at this point. Uh, you're up for that, I'm sure. And you're joining us next month. Anytime you let me know, I'm usually around and there's always new things to talk about, right? Oh, there's, there's always shifts and things that matter. And if, for those paying attention, fortunes are made and lost during cyclical change. And we are and in the midst. If you're in California, even if you're not, go to the, the AEI.org, the Housing Center for American Enterprise Institute, and look up those presentations by Ed Pinto and Tobias Peter on, on SB9 and 10. And uh, they're going to be real interesting. It's your future if you live in California. So you want to pay attention to it. And there's nobody better to talk about this than, than uh, Ed and Tobias. So go to American Institute, look at that. And uh, I guarantee it'll provide you with information you're going to use with your clients. And the simple math here for those uh, going, well, why? Double density, double the building, double the income, double the value. That's a simple statement. And Saul, something we haven't done, you and I, in forever. Uh, 30 episodes. What book are you recommending these days? Uh, 
Well, you don't have it ready, do you? So I, bought the I don't. Actually, I just, I just bought a new one, and I have to send it to you because uh, I haven't read it yet. So I get to read it before I give it to you. Fair enough. Uh, to our audience, thank you. Looking forward to seeing you first Thursday every month, 6 p.m. Eastern, for the entire roundtable. Saul and I will be there continuing our discussion on all things real estate, along with our other hosts. And soon to be announced the follow-up to this conversation more sector interviews including uh inland private capitals talking about securities keith lampy is going to be joining us for a sector interview stay tuned come back search for us find us crack ai i'm andreas sunny saul klein thank you everyone